This space was downloaded via spacesdown.com. Visit to download your spaces today. I'm Ajay Ramasubramaniam, co-founder and CEO at Hindsight Ventures. Welcome to the 25th episode of Founders 52. Before we jump in and have this revealing conversation with Bram and Lillian, co-founders of Imata from Uganda, a little bit about who we are at Hindsight Ventures and what's Founders 52 all about. So Hindsight Ventures is an Africa-focused entrepreneurship support organization. Essentially, we operate startup accelerators and boot camps, uh, venture development programs, founder development boot camps. We work with corporates on corporate innovation programs. And Hindsight Ventures was carved out of Startup Reserve, which is headquartered in India. Uh, we started off with Hindsight Ventures in 2021. And over the past couple of years, we have done 15 pre-accelerators and accelerators and, and boot camp, venture development and venture boot camp programs. 234 startups have been through our programs and the the reason why we carved out Hindsight Ventures as a separate vertical was because we believed that the different emerging tech hubs across the, the African continent uh, required programs which was catering to African entrepreneurs building in Africa for Africa and given our expertise and experience built over the past decade building our programs in emerging markets, we felt that bringing programming to, to different emerging tech hubs across the continent would make a lot of sense, but at the same time, trying to localize a lot of things while bringing a, a global context. Um, coming to Founders 52, uh, it's been about six months since we started Founders 52, and the whole thought process behind Founders 52 was because we believe storytelling is a very impactful way of inspiring people. And there are a lot of people who have built companies, scaled companies within the continent, uh, raised capital, got it into international accelerator programs, solving challenges at, at mass scale, and we believe that there are a lot of these stories which can be brought out and the stories which are not just around fundraising, stories around pivots, stories around how do you actually crack a difficult market, stories on how do you hire talent and, and all of that which actually will inspire a lot of people to begin their entrepreneurial journey. And that's what kind of kick-started our, our journey of, of building uh, Founders 52 as a, as a media or a, or a content uh, engine to, to narrate these stories. Uh, we are hosting it on, on Twitter spaces or X spaces as, as it might be known now. But at the same time, we put it out on, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And, and just a few days back, we went live on, on AfriPods, which gives us a deep penetration into the, into the podcast listening market in Africa. With that, I'd like to welcome our guests for the evening, Bram and Lillian, co-founders of Imata. Uh, Bram, Lillian, uh, thank you so much for making time. Welcome on the chat. Thank you, and good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or good night. I'm not sure which time zones we're covering. This, this is this is the the World Wide Web, so this is this is all time zones at at all times. But before we before we dive in into into the story of or the journey rather of Imata and the problem that you're solving, if we can just know a little bit of background of of Bram and Lillian, the the individuals. Lillian, maybe you can you can go first, followed by Bram, talking about where you grew up, what did you study, what were you doing before you, you thought of starting Imata? <laughs> Great. Uh, yes, my name is Lilian Musoke, and I am Chief Product Officer and Co-Founder at Imata. Uh, before becoming Chief Product Officer, I uh, worked with Bram and another co-founder called Davis in a company called Laboremus, where we uh, work to digitize banks. My background is essentially heavily technical. So I was a senior software developer in that company where we built 
banks digitally, both in Scandinavia and in East Africa. And the experience there is what um, shaped a, a lot of our thinking in trying to transform how farmers are financed. I'll let Bram take on the story of the origin of Umata. Not before you tell us about your Not before you tell us about the coffee farm of your parents, your grandparents. Yeah, but um, just my personal appreciation about uh, finding farmers also springs a bit from my background. Um, I come from central Uganda, born and raised, and my parents also come from central Uganda in the central region where coffee is one of the crops that um, is is a cash crop, I guess. Um, and where I come from, coffee in in many of the families I, I know. Let me know if I'm audible. This space was downloaded via spacesdown.com. Visit to download your spaces today. This space was downloaded via spacesdown.com. Visit to download your spaces today. And welcome back to me as well on the on the chat. Uh, but if I can just continue on from from where you were at, uh, giving a background of uh, Bram and Lillian, the the individuals before you you started Imata, uh, your academic background, where you grew up, what were your interests, and and what were you doing before you launched Imata? Yes, um, just a quick a quick summary. My background is technology. I studied software engineering uh, and did a lot of coding for about seven years um, before becoming product manager at Imata. Um, I worked for six of the seven years uh, with Bram and Davis in a company where we digitize banks, uh, both in Scandinavia and East Africa. Um, prior to starting Imita, but way before that, I came from a family um, that has a history with growing coffee and where I come from, coffee meant school fees. Um, most of the people that grew coffee was primarily to be able to take children to school. So my parents and uh, part of my relatives education came from coffee so i have a personal appreciation for what farmers do um and uh as the idea for imata came it was an opportunity for me to to solve a problem that every farmer faces um a problem that i could identify with a problem that i know will not only change just a few lives, but radically change how um, many farmers and their families can live. Uh, I'll I'll ask Bram to fill in the gaps of sure. part of why Imata was was created. Yep, so Lily and I clearly share a passion for agri, but where Lillian is the tech, I tend to be the fin of the fintech. Um, now, I personally grew up in the Netherlands, and of course, agriculture is everywhere in the Netherlands. 
I studied finance uh, and, and philosophy for that matter, but professionally uh, I pursued a career in finance. And uh, at some point I worked for a hedge fund and this was in, uh, in the boom years for our young listeners of 2006 and 2007 when commodity prices went through the roof. For those of you who remember, I think oil at some point hit $180 a barrel. Uh, which was something we haven't seen in a long time. Those, those are very different times, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But one of the things that also happened there is that the food prices went through the roof, uh, as, of course, they periodically do. But that year, it got really, really scary. Um, and I was working for a hedge fund, and I just got fascinated by the fact that you had all these massive container ships packed with maize and, and, and wheat and, and, and other grains and oil seeds that countries were panicking and trying to buy up these ships as they were already sailing off to reach a certain destination. And the background to that was that people started realizing that food shortages would become real again and that food prices structurally will, will continue to go up uh, indefinitely into the future. And that may not sound odd now, but until that point in time, food prices had actually come down structurally over decades, over centuries. Um, so I, I remember sitting there like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, hmm, I agree. That's, you know, uh, that is <laughs> that is attracting big money. Uh, I know, and I went on with my career and I joined some big international bank and I started doing big banking things. And at some point I got, I got, um, I got intrigued again and I joined a team in the bank that was financing agriculture in the former Soviet Union. So I was flying a lot to Russia, and in fact, I was living in Russia for a while, and in Ukraine, and Kazakhstan, and Romania. Uh, and and I was I was financing agriculture, and I was having the time of my life. It was very interesting. But then a couple of things happened. Uh, the first thing that happened is that, of course, the war broke out between Russia and Ukraine. Yes, the war is currently ongoing, but the the occupation of Crimea actually happened while I was still flying in and out and, and giving loans to farmers. And then the other thing that happened is the bank got a bit scared, which maybe is understandable, but I realized that banks essentially exist to give money to people who already have a lot of money, because that is low risk. They want a lot of money, so it's very easy to earn money. And I got a bit upset that, you know, hey, you have this bank and you have all this capital and you have all this knowledge. And, and the thing you're doing with it is so <laughs> uncatalytic. It is so boring. It is so safe. Like, guys, come on, you know, <laughs> we can do better than this. So even though the bank offered me some very interesting positions, I, I actually resigned. I left. Uh, and then uh, an old study friend of mine convinced me to come down to East Africa, to Uganda in particular. Um, and and if, if I would want to cut myself short, I could say the rest is history. <laughs> but what really happened is that, indeed, I started working for a company together with Lillian uh, and Dave. And Dave is also one of our co-founders and our CTO. And we're building banks mainly for the European market. And I thought, well, that's that's weird. Why we're we having all this cool tech that's going to Europe? Why don't we try to use this to um, to improve the banks here in the, the East African region? So we started doing that. And while we started doing that, I was talking to all these bank executives, and I started realizing that no matter what we do, no matter what we tell them, no matter which knowledge we give them, no matter which technology we give them, no matter how awesome this technology is, they will never truly innovate. Um, they will not change. They will not solve the big problems. Uh, that at least uh, in, in the case of East Africa uh, means that right, the, the sort of the the, the top 10% of the country is being banked, you know, 
quite okay. Uh, but for the majority of the country, banks are just not accessible and not pleasant to deal with and way too expensive for what they need. Um, so, yeah, for a while, we tried to uh, sell them technology and then we realized, you know what? Yeah, let's let's just show them how it should be done. Uh, and then we quickly set our eyes on agriculture because, of course, agriculture is the elephant in the room on the African continent, right? It's the biggest industry. It's the most people, it's the least banked, but it's also the most difficult one to crack. Uh, so we asked ourselves the question, can this be done? Can you actually finance farmers fully digitally? Uh, and we started running some pilots uh, next to our day job of, uh, of, of building uh, a tech for banks. Uh, and yeah, when the moment we got convinced, uh, we looked at each other and said, yes, we can do this. Let's let's set up this company. Let's do this and let's start it. And, uh, and it has been an insane journey ever since. No, thank you, thank you so much for that, uh, Lillian and Brahman. I think by 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 speaking what you did, you probably kind of have taken away a few of my questions away from me, which I'm I'm not complaining about. <laughs> but having said having said that, a uh, lot of lot of things that I would have come to, and some of the the essential ingredients, if you may say, of building a a blockbuster startup or a blockbuster uh, solution to a problem. I think all of that were pretty much in place. I mean, when Lillian started speaking about the, the the personal aspect of of family and and community uh, kind of uh, relating to to the whole plight of of coffee farmers or or farmers in in particular i think that is one part the second part is i think building technology or trying to digitize banks or financial institutions which are 150 and 200 years old is is nightmarish the the next best alternative is to is to probably go to to markets where it's only probably the top 5 or top 10% of the the population is banked and build a bank, but a bank which is a new age bank or a new age financial institution, but with, with with digital or technology at the core of it, which is essentially what you're doing. And the third aspect, which is talking about uh, agriculture, I think uh, it, still if you look across uh, across the world and across different markets, I think agriculture and, and farmers still contribute one of the, the biggest percentage of, of contribution, especially if you look at the global south, almost 70 to 80 percent of, of the of the of the GDP uh, is is contributed by by agriculture or at least employment of 70 to 80 percent people is within the the agricultural sector. But still, it is one which is uh, which is not touched as deeply on a on a daily basis by by digital and technology and and farmers and and agriculture as a sector is is fairly sensitive. You cannot just try to peddle stuff or or sell stuff to them. But it's it's a very close knit kind of community. And and that brings me probably to a a manufactured question to you is that how easy or difficult was it when you were building Emata in the in the initial days and were taking it to to farmers or the or the agricultural community in terms of uh, what what was your product market fit where where did where did the product market fit sink in for you Lillian chief product officer this is what <laughs> this is why well, uh, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take us back a bit at the very beginning. So we, as Bram mentioned, we did a few pilots and uh, research and development in the beginning. And we had brilliant ideas um, to go give the farmers an app that digitized them, that basically we thought met the problem. Now... We quickly discovered <laughs> that 
Yes, as as much as it was predicted that um, most of uh, Africa is moving digital, farmers, especially here in Uganda and in rural areas, were not ready to make that jump. Uh, so we had to go back to the drawing board and let the app go. <laughs> um, but we discovered something. They were, uh, there was a lot of data on how farmers work and how farmers produce um, in the different value chains. In this case, it was milk, but they were paper-based records. The records existed, but they need, needed to be digitized for us to even understand how these farmers perform financially and how we can better serve them and and provide loans. Now that led to the question, how do we digitize these farmers? The app didn't work, but as we walked around, we found that most of these farmers went to what we call farmer cooperatives. These cooperatives had desktops and and for, for some most sophisticated ones, they used Excel. Yeah, the others who had computers, did not know much on how to use them and some didn't have computers at all. But we had somewhere we could start. So we created something that looked exactly like the way their books looked like, the way their Excels looked like. And this is something that we called um, a management information system where they could capture and manage their farmer information. Now, when this happened, it opened up the first door of digitizing we were able now to turn the books the large rooms of files and papers into a digital record we can use and analyze to figure out how we can lend and that um was the first step to our our product our loan product that started in dairy back in 2021 when we launched uh our loans. What did we learn? We had to adapt and learn how to create technology in low-tech environments with very little internet and I would say take of us kind of users. Yeah. So those are some of the things we had to navigate around at that time, but we knew it was going to work because it had the basics. So, did I miss something, bro? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was definitely, uh, as Lillian described, <laughs> quite a quite a tour. Of course. To design, to design tech in a low tech environment, um, and one of the tricks that we did is sort of to sort of see, okay, but we can look at all the things that are not there. Yeah. But we can also look at what is there yeah. and what can we write on. So obviously mobile money, for those of you uh, who are based in Africa, right? I guess nobody can live, can imagine a life without mobile money anymore, especially in the East Africa. It's, it's absolutely massive. And of course, when COVID came, mobile money went literally everywhere, right? Every remote village had to rely on mobile money because sending money physically simply was hardly any option anymore with, 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 with uh, public transport breaking down nearly completely. So that was one, an obvious one. 
Then for us, we we jumped on the WhatsApp bandwagon. This was at the time when WhatsApp was opening up their APIs, and that proved brilliant. Uh, WhatsApp is is by far the most dominant platform uh, in in Africa, but at the same time, it is super data efficient. It is really good in low connectivity environments because it keeps on compressing and it keeps on trying. Maybe unlike an app, which sort of you know. Uh, <laughs> cancels out the moment 4G turns into 3G, you know, which is something normally we're happy with. Oh, there's 3G, good. We can, you know, that's going to be smooth today. Um, and, and I would say, lastly, and Lillian briefly tapped upon this, there is actually an infrastructure in in unrural Africa, and especially in the agricultural uh, sector. Uh, and typically, this is known as cooperatives, uh, but depending on which agricultural crop you're looking at, cooperatives may have a bit of a different name. Um, but yeah, what, what we definitely found is that for some value chains, cooperatives are are quite influential. We we used to joke that, yeah, in the village you have the church and you have the co- co- cooperative, and that's sort of what the, the social life revolves around. Um, so yeah, we, we use these three things. So the fact that there's mobile money, the fact that WhatsApp is so popular and, and so powerful in, in, in rural areas. Uh, and that cooperatives or other pharma-based organizations uh, actually um, are part of the social fabric uh, in many of these villages. To to build our tag around this uh, and to yeah to change as little behavior as we can, uh, because of course anybody who who tried to build a company knows that changing behavior is is ridiculously uh, expensive. Uh, maybe the last thing that is interesting to talk about um, is is um, the need for trust, especially when it comes to rollout and adoption. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you have those startups, that's what I want to sell. They just launched some kind of online campaign you know, with Google and you know, Facebook, if that still exists. Uh, <laughs> some other social media platforms. And they have a funnel and they can sort of calculate backwards how much they need to spend you know, per click to, to get what they need. <laughs> so, yeah, good, good, good luck <laughs> of country. Um, so we we learned definitely the hard way that you first have to build trust with your users. Otherwise, because these are often first-time tech users, otherwise it is not going to work. So we learned the hard way that we first have to show up two, three, sometimes even four times at the specific place where we're launching just to build trust. Um, even though our tech is that simple that people will learn it in five minutes, if we haven't first built that trust, the moment the smallest thing goes wrong, the thing will collapse. Uh, people forget their login pin. Uh, uh, people just forgot which button to click. Mm. People made a mistake and were too afraid to say it. Uh, I, I don't know. The, the odd, we came across the oddest things in the beginning. Uh, and what we then realized is, wait a minute, these, these are not, it's not about the mistakes, that, the, the real things that are happening. It's just there's a lack of trust that these people are a bit afraid to use technology. So we have to uh, to build up their trust and somehow build them that build that confidence. Uh, so we, we had to develop sort of a low to medium touch model where, yeah, even though we are a tech model, we uh, tech company, we, we have people out there who, who support our users, not so much on the technical side of things, but more on the let's build trust. You got this, you can do this. Technology is not afraid kind of, uh, kind of thing. And the moment we have done that, you know, which sort of takes a couple of months, then, then the tech can truly take over and, and, and uh, right, the unit economics can work on all those things. But yeah, um, um, like, like any other startup out there, it's been quite the journey of, uh, of learning and discovery. Um, yeah, 
until this day, I think there's not an hour that doesn't go by where we're like, huh, guess this is how we should do it. No, I think some some very important points touched upon there. And and, uh, the the one critical word that kind of stands out for me is uh, trust. I mean, uh, building something uh, which is financial inclusion or where where money kind of comes in, or if you were to kind of look at education and and healthcare, I think these are three uh, larger kind of industries or sectors in which trust plays a, a very important role. And it's not like just another consumer internet company which is uh, which is built on on probably how much you're able to spend and and whatnot it's maybe it's not cool and sexy but it is like uh, Lillian was was alluding to I mean even to get to a product market fit I think it it takes a lot of lot of time and effort and and truly kind of working at the at the grassroots because and that's why you don't see too many people building uh, agri-tech or agri-fintech companies because it's it's tough job it's not like building a food delivery app or something not that it's not it doesn't have its own share of of pain or or difficulties, but I think it's uh, it's not cool and sexy in the first place, and it it requires some hard work to kind of go out there, and and probably that's where the the team kind of comes in, and the kind of background. I mean, whether it is someone like a, a Lillian who who probably grew up in in Uganda or has farmers in the in the family in the community, Bram, like you said, I mean, working with a with a hedge fund, I think managing money is one thing, but multiplying the the money while you're managing it, I think. Uh, hedge fund and, and and larger institutional financing companies kind of they they teach you that bit and then comes the the technology part and building technology for a for a market where if you look at africa the one good thing is you can you can classify uh, pre internet and post internet and there's there's a lot of things that mobile money has kind of paved way for and that's where the the existing infrastructure or the existing rails kind of comes into play and how you can leverage it and how you can build on top of it I think is is where a, a lot of effort goes in, but still, I think the the trust factor and and having the product market fit in the in the right shape and form is super critical before you actually kind of roll out the product. And and rolling out kind of comes with its own challenges. And at the same time, to roll out a product, you need money as well. Now, when you're solving for for a market at a at a nascent stage that that it is at, and you're trying to build a niche fintech company catering to the the agricultural sector. What was your personal journey around on raising financing for for building the company, which would go into building the tech, hiring the team, and so on? It was tough. <laughs> it was very tough. Um, so yeah, the the opportunity stares everybody in the face, uh, and all the investors know it, right? The guys who crack the agricultural sector, yeah, that one is massive, uh, and it's still right out the up there for the taking. Um, at the same time, how shall I call it? The number of touch points they want to see before they actually believe your story is is <laughs> fairly fairly extreme. Uh, fairly extreme. Uh, so yeah, we, we we had to come quite far ourselves uh, before the investors pulled the trigger. Not because they weren't interested, not because they didn't know, but yeah, um, they seemed very conservative on this one. Uh, and yeah, uh, we had a few heartbreaking moments where funding rounds fell apart. Um, <laughs> so we had to pick ourselves up and keep on going. Um, but with time, you know, 
the investors start recognizing that, hey, these guys are still around. These guys are growing. These guys, you know, they, they, they're really on to something. And of course, at some point, the number of touch points start playing into your favor. And it becomes so obvious and so evident that our model uh, is not only delivering great results for farmers, but also a very, very attractive opportunity for investors. Uh, so I must say where, where we are today is a very good place to be. Uh, but the first three years, it was really, really tough. Uh, and indeed, the joke you made about the food delivery app, or as we always joked in our company, a payments company. Yeah, uh, there were proven business models that, that were getting funding already. And, and people knew the business models at the moment you could have sort of, right? She said the right things. Yeah, I'm not saying you would get money easily. <clears throat> But I think uh, some of these business models have definitely faced less skepticism than we. Uh, but yeah, right. Every as a as a wise man from the Netherlands once said, every disadvantage has an advantage. So what initially was a massive disadvantage for us, right? Show us more. Show that this can scale. Show us with, with bigger farmer numbers. And at some point, we're showing things, you know, with 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 ten thousand, fifty thousand farmers. We're like, hey guys, you know, how many more farmers do you want uh, us to 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 onboard before you see that this thing works? Yeah, at some point, that became a massive advantage for us. That now, yeah, also the the big investor names out there realize that okay, uh, actually, agriculture can be done. This opportunity can be cracked, and there are models out there that work uh, in terms of impact, in terms of results, in terms of unit economics, in terms of margin. Uh, so we're in a really good place today, but it was a it was a long, audacious journey. No, I think again going back. I mean, without making it a, a joke, I think if you look at a market like the African continent, uh, there have been food delivery apps and and other consumer internet companies which have probably been able to to raise money, but they they shut down in eighteen to twenty four months because probably the the target audience or the the TAM does just does not. Uh, exist, but at the same time, I call it ironical because if you look at agriculture, I think there are far many more people who are looking at at solutions in the in the agricultural uh, value chain compared to someone who is just looking to order a a, a plate of food or going on to a going on to an app or a, or a website. So it is it is sad that not as many uh, agri tech companies or agri fintech companies uh, are able to kind of uh, raise raise money or or build profile and and actually kind of uh, get into the market, but it's it's kind of gradually changing and and getting there. Um, so a couple of things. Uh, I mean, if I, I was just looking uh, looking up uh, Imata's uh, website before we we started the conversation. I mean, technology is one part, but when it actually comes to kind of the the financial products, is Imata doing it out of your balance sheet or you have? those strategic partners and alliances with banks and financial institutions, which enable you to kind of co-create those those financial products and, and put it out there, just out of curiosity. Yeah, I'm not sure who's on the call, if there are any investors on the call or any banks, so maybe I have to be careful. Um, but yeah, we, we, we have from the beginning said that, at least speaking for Uganda, we felt the banks or partnering with the banks would slow us down to a point where, yeah, it would really start hurting uh, our innovation phase and the phase at which we'd like to move. Uh, and, and me being a, a former investment banker myself, I was pretty confident that, that I should be able to raise the, the debt that we need to uh, uh, to fund our loan book. So we went for the for the on balance sheet model, uh, and of course that is a perennial discussion in the world of fintechs. There is a large group of investors that absolutely despise that model, and they really don't like it. 
And I would like to say they're more the realistic investors that understand it is not optimal for a startup to keep on raising capital to lend out, even if its capital is debt, it does not dilute it. But it's is the only way to get there uh, because relying on banks often just comes with such a host of challenges. So indeed, we are at the moment an unbalanced sheet lender and we have stipulated a number of strategic options uh, where this will go uh, as we scale. There are the peer-to-peer lending platforms. Uh, there are some large agricultural companies out there that actually have big balance sheets themselves, so they have the SaaS route for them. And yes, ultimately, we hope, uh, we like to think that the East African banks uh, will wake up uh, and start embracing partnerships with fintechs in a way that is adding value as opposed to uh, destructing value. And I know, for as a matter of fact, that that, that some of them has have, have gone public uh, by, by making that statement, and actually have, have put into action by by partnering with 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 some fintechs. Um, and I have been hearing the first few positive stories, but I must say that the negative stories of banks, you know, creating headaches and slowing down fintechs and not delivering when they should, uh, I'm still still outweigh the positive ones. Uh, but but we are to few that. This will probably change. These banks are also evolving, be it at their own pace. And we hope this window will open in earnest in the, in the next few years. No, thank, thank you so much for, for mentioning that. I, I think uh, partnering is, is, a, is, a, is a great way of, of going about things, but because as much as one may despise the, the, the slower pace of, of growth or movement when you, when you work with larger financial institutions, I think for for some of the companies, I think working with uh, with a bank or a large financial institution makes a lot of sense. But like you said, where you come from, and also the the market that you're trying to address, where it actually requires innovation, not just as digital and technology, but probably it requires innovation when it comes to processes. It requires innovation when it comes to business model. I think uh, going solo and and proving it out and and scaling up by yourself with your own means, I think it it makes a lot of sense. And and that's also I think. Uh, useful insight for for anyone who's who's building a company because a lot of times one might think that partnering is the is the only way to go about things but sometimes you need to take that step back and figure out what works best for you because what works for someone else like maybe say a payments company i think they would be better off working with a bank and and sitting on top of their rails and becomes uh, trustworthy and and whatnot but when you're doing something with with the agricultural sector I think the the core of the product lies in the trust that they, that you're able to build, and and you need to do the hard yards. So you cannot kind of rely on someone else, or or probably uh, build on top of the rails that exist. Because surprise, surprise, there is there is no rails that that exist. So you need to pave the path and and build the rails and and build not only the product but also the the business model and and every, everything else that goes into kind of rolling out uh, rolling out the the business. So so thank you so much, Bram, for for putting that out there. Now coming to to my next question, uh, if you look at if you look at the problem that you're trying to solve, right? I mean, uh, right now, are you focused on on specific verticals within agriculture? And and I'll I'll add on to this question. But the first question is, are you catering to like particular segments, like say coffee farmers or or something of that sort? That is number one. And the second thing is, how easily do you think is the product or the business scalable to within the region or other markets within the continent? So for the first question, uh, yes, we are indeed uh, dealing with 
value chains, one value chain at a time. We started in dairy, we're active in coffee, maize, oil seeds. We recently onboarded sunflower and are looking into cocoa and potatoes. Uh, reason being is that every crop behaves differently. And that means we need to different data points and we need different aspects to be able to credit score accurately and forecast uh, properly for farmers to get limits that are tailored to them. Um, that's for question number one. Number two, uh, <laughs> number two is, um, well, scalability. How how scalable are we now? Um, this is, I'll take us back a little bit on, on how we started in dairy uh, because that was our first uh, value chain. We began um, by onboarding just a few and as we speak with the same platform and a few improvements, of course, we've had a lot of learnings uh, to be able to to know how to process and create uh, workflows that work at scale. And we can comfortably uh, now support over 40 partners in dairy. But then when it comes to crop, it's a different kind of, um, I'd say, base because for crop partners that's cooperatives they tend to be much bigger uh, one partner alone can give us access to 20 or thousand or more farmers at a given time well for 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 milk for example for dairy in uganda cooperatives tend to be a bit smaller around a hundred thousand a hundred people 80 people on average so it's much more manageable what we have learned is we need to use our existing partners' um, networks, that's in terms of agency networks, to scale. Um, we've also learned that we needed to optimize um, our onboarding processes. We needed to optimize how quickly we get we get farmers to from being aware of the product to actually doing the loan request. Um, being a fully digital process, it takes about five minutes from request to uh, disbursement of a loan, but can we make it shorter to be able to uh, service very many farmers who whose average uh, loan amount is um, lower than uh, the more common loans? So those are questions we asked, we had to answer all along the way to help us scale. Are we where we need to be? No, there's a bunch of things that we need to improve because for crop, for example, we've started we started in pilots. We artificially um, made experiments to get started and land the crop, and then we scale. Uh, after the pilot season, as we go along, uh, qualifying more farmers to take a, uh, take up the loan. Now, with that, we we learn we learned how to come from fifty farmers to five hundred farmers to five thousand farmers, and now need to learn how to do even more than five thousand at a given time. If you understand how crops work. 
they have cycles, right? There's, we have to be t in time for the cycle the planting season in time for the harvest to capture data that means we have a limited window to do both onboarding and processing all these requests so those are kind of the things we 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 look into and start to work with our um our tech team our ctoic is on the call listening uh, we have a brilliant tech team that we're always iterating and growing and improving the product as we go along to reach farmers at scale. And and right now the way the the model is, I mean, because you're, I mean, like I said, tech is is an enabler or digital is is more of an enabler over here. But there there are a lot of other functions which require uh, human intervention uh, in in the business that that you are in. So does does your entire team currently operate out of Uganda, or you have a, a distributed team? I'd say uh, we only have we we have all the team mostly here in Uganda, except for our <laughs> chief data science officer who's uh, mostly in uh, the Netherlands. But our team is almost a hundred percent here in in Uganda. Okay, fun question. We all talk about data being the new oil, and I did read of uh, alternate data that you use. What do you do when there is no data available? <laughs> then, uh, then we we have to go back to the drawing board because either something is wrong with our model or technology, or something is wrong with the partner. Because indeed, yeah, we we, we don't act without data. Uh, yeah. data is a, is a necessary condition uh, and it's an integral, integral part of, of, of the platform that we have developed that we always uh, and at any time keep on capturing data uh, on, on the farmers uh, because yeah if, if you don't yeah the, the, the algorithm stops and the model stops and then you and you lose track of of your customer of course. No, I mean, it, it was a fun question, but but also at the same time, right? I mean, when we talk of alternate data and particularly in, in emerging markets, I mean, I, I have like like friends, I have like entrepreneurs I've been working with for, for years, even in, in India. And while we do talk of, of alternate data, I think uh, in, in many cases, there, there, there actually is no source of, of alternate data. And and that kind of really kind of affects your, your decision making because of which probably there are far lesser people who are going to be queuing up to avail the products. But at the same time, is, is there anything that you're doing to, to improve the, the, the quality of data? Or I'm, I'm sure that it's, it's a constant kind of uh, build that you're also doing to improve the, the sources of data or probably the, the, the kind of data that is coming through, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, when we were just there, uh, MVPing around our first algorithms <laughs> are uh, indeed Lillian alluded to the fact that that our chief data science officer next area. Very cool. Um, also, I mean, uh, sorry, go ahead. So when we asked him to have a look at the first data, we, we managed to scrape together. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he had a very serious face uh, and he said, well, there's there's bad news and there's good news. The, the bad news is none of the standard data science models out there is going to work. Um, not on this type of data, not on this quantity of data. The good news is if you're really, really good, uh, 
and you're creative and you're really right you know how to build algorithms yourself um, and you look a little bit beyond the obvious there are patterns in the data and this can be solved then of course he said well i'm I, i'm good so <laughs> i got you covered but essentially um the data science problem that i think many african startups and maybe in the global south uh, at, at large are, are facing is that most data science models are built to subtract signals out of an insane amount of data right such a big amount of data that that not a human brain can can make sense of uh, whereas for us the problem is okay there is almost no data we're we're doing what we can to collect the data but the data that we do have how can we get the most out of it uh, which is something that again right most data science models are aren't built for um so indeed for us it's an integral part of the story that we as a company need to be get need to be really good at collecting data cleaning data and get as much out of it as we can there are a few data sources that thankfully we, we can tap into uh, when it comes to weather data when it comes to identity uh, data thankfully that 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 is kind of available um, so thankfully yeah, we, we can tap into third parties for that but the core of the data that we need yeah we, we have to go out there ourselves um, and indeed um, we, we, we try to pick a leaf from Google right where we sort of make a super super nice piece of software that we give to others and, and as a result of that we, we get the data that we need sort of in, in an automated validated data stream but that means there's an upfront cost right because you yeah you have to develop that piece of software you have to make sure it's really really good you have to make sure users like it and love it uh, um, and then you have to clean it <laughs> uh, yeah so yeah uh, definitely when it comes to data um uh, the, the challenge is is a real one um but there is no there is no shortcut there is no way around it because if you don't become really good at data and you don't have really good data sources yeah it's going to be really really tough to um to compete or even be around you know five five to ten years from now No, very cool. Uh, thanks, thanks, Bram, for for explaining that. Uh, I also have a have an add on question because a lot of times when we talk of uh, of data, uh, we also talk of the source, and in many cases, and particularly when you talk of the agri value chain, uh, there is there are farms, there are machines, there are there are many things that kind of come in. Have you seen use cases of data coming or emanating from IoT? uh in the in the agri value chain that you're currently making use of uh, initially when we were creating our first data collection tool we imagined a bunch of things that were sophisticated including iot we imagined that um for example, at the dairy cooperative, that the cooler would have a system that would help us capture the quantity of milk that's poured into it. We imagine that uh, it would be able to measure the density and the quality of the milk to give us more information about how farmers perform at the co-op. Now, like we said earlier, we were awakened to the reality that as much as Technology is something that looks fancy. Everyone wants to have it. Even the coolers at this co-op looked a bit sophisticated, but no one actually knew how to use or leverage or use the, the, these machines 
uh, well. We had to start simple. So I'd say that simple answer is we do know about IoT, but we do not currently use it because of the kind um, of farmers and the kind of partners we work with. They're not as sophisticated. So we needed to find more innovative ways to capture the data we needed uh, to be able to give them the product. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, Bram, do you want to add something to that? Well, I, I like what you said earlier uh, on this conversation where you said <laughs> uh, that you can have a train without rails. Um, and and, and yeah. I thought about a very interesting metaphor for some of these really, really fancy startups out there who lack a real market. Yeah, the market may be there, but it's, you know, it's tiny and, it, it, you know, <laughs> it doesn't scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, agri is real and agri is used, uh, is, is huge, uh, but it needs, <laughs> it needs very simple, robust rails and it needs a very sturdy train. Anything too fancy, anything too sensitive be it power, be it connectivity, be it support and maintenance, be it, you know, what what, what happens if there's a glitch? Who, who can solve this? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's doomed to fail. Uh, so let me let me say that I, I, I truly hope that we will see the day where, where IoT is becoming real for our users as well. And I'm very hopeful that will happen, especially for a sub-segment of the market, because there are uh, players in the agricultural segment out there, there are farmers out there that are Definitely, you know, the moment you give them the opportunity, the moment you give them some tech, they they embrace it fully, and, and they love it, and, and they want to go. Uh, but but yeah, for, for the majority out there, it, that day uh, may come a little bit later. Uh, but I really really hope we're gonna we're gonna see that day. But yeah, in order to get into that game, we first have to stick to the basics and, and keep things very simple um, to make sure that. Yeah, this huge market is not huge on paper, but it's actually a, a reality that we can serve. No, that's 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 very true. I think a lot of lot of technology. I think uh, we we all kind of drum it up, and and a lot of founders they they like kind of talking about AI and blockchain and and IoT. But uh, great from a technological advancement standpoint, but does it does it make sense from a business standpoint? Does it make sense from a market maturity standpoint? I think one needs to kind of uh, consider that as well and. You don't want to put the, the the carriage in front of the the horse because it's going to, going to go nowhere. So similarly for for a lot of technology, I think you need to first kind of identify the the problem and and how how are you going to try and solve it. And then technology is probably just a small piece of the of the bigger puzzle. And you don't build a business around technology, but you build technology within the business. So I I, I hear what you're saying and and where you're you're coming from. Um, with that, uh, Bram, I'd like to come to my last question, and and we are on the clock. So I'd come to my last question, and we can then open up the floor for or a couple of our, our audiences if they have any any questions for you. What's what's next for for Imata? How do you how do you see the the next few quarters and years kind of uh, panning out? Ooh, that's a, that's a big question. Um, so a, a lot is happening. Um, so for us, we're we're scaling very fast in dairy and in coffee. Uh, and we, we, we keep on uh, trying out new value chains. Uh, so as Daniel mentioned, we're going to launch a few in the coming months, including potatoes and cacao uh, uh, and shea nuts, which is which is a type of, of oil seed. Um, and that will probably continue. And if we get good results, if we like it, we scale it up. If we don't get good results, we'll, we'll try to take the lessons uh, and, and use that to, to cross-fertilize what we do elsewhere. 
uh, and then uh, leave the value chain alone until better days come. Uh, so that's that. Uh, in terms of product developments, the roadmap is <laughs> ever ever so packed. Um, so we have a lot of exciting things. Uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna move a little bit into the digital payment space, not necessarily for commercial reasons, but definitely for strategic and risk reasons. Um, so that's a big one on uh, on uh, on the roadmap. Uh, a little bit further out, we're looking at recommendation engines. So today, our bread and butter is to give loans to farmers, but we have so much data behind our company that actually we can see the impact of the loans so we can see which loans work particularly well for certain farmers uh, and then of course it, it's a small step to turn that into a recommendation engine where we start recommending farmers based on big data uh, what they should be doing with their farm and of course then offer them the loan uh, on the back of that um, so that's pretty exciting um, yeah other other countries of course other geographies so uganda is it's not a super well-known tech market compared to Nigeria or Kenya or South Africa or Egypt. However, it is a pretty powerful country when it comes to agriculture. We're talking five to six billion dollar GDP that's generated by agriculture. Milk alone generates one billion dollar every year in terms of farmer income. So we have no pressure to leave Uganda because the growth uh, will be there for us uh, definitely for the years to come. Uh, but we do understand that uh, um, this is a pan-African problem that we're solving. Uh, so we are planning to expand into other East African countries. Uh, uh, and we were making up our minds what would be our first move. Uh, and we're doing our homework and, and we're having our discussions with our first uh, potential partners. And we hope that next year uh, this can become a reality already. Um, so, yeah, plenty plenty on our plate, uh, Ajay. So, uh, yeah, we... Uh, <laughs> we, we shall sacrifice our sleep and keep pushing uh, as we realize the dreams of ourselves and, uh, and of our farmers. No, absolutely right. Right things and right reasons to, to sacrifice sleep. And, and like you said, it's, it's a massive problem that you're that is solving for. It's a it's a huge market which kind of cuts across the, the continent. But it's it's not a, a, a real copy paste kind of a thing where you can just get into a new market maybe a couple of days like like an e-commerce company or, or whatever it, it requires uh, ample amount of, of planning and, and work that that goes behind before you actually launch products like uh, what what Imata is but uh, kudos to whatever you have you have done and achieved so far uh, in your in your long list of milestones but also uh, you should kind of be able to kind of grow and, and scale uh, within the continent so so congratulations for that in in advance because i think the the fundamentals of the basics on which the business is built is is fairly strong and and that's reasons good enough for you to be able to kind of grow faster and and scale scale beyond so congrats on that i i'll just like to open up the floor for for our audience if anyone has questions you can raise your hand and i can bring you on on stage you can introduce yourself and point the question towards bram or lillian so over to the audience. If anyone has questions, happy to bring you on. Um, if there are no questions, then I'll, I'll let Bram and, and Lillian uh, take leave. Thank you so much, both of you, for for being with us over here today, uh, taking all the questions that I had for you and and speaking very openly about how you have gone about uh, building Imata. It's, it's a wonderful conversation, and I'm sure that our listeners, the ones who, who tuned in live today, but more importantly, when it goes up on 
on bunch of other platforms tomorrow spotify apple podcast afripods i'm sure that over, over the next few days and weeks a uh, lot many more folks are going to to tune in and and listen to what your journey has been uh, fintech is is not easy and when you're building a fintech in the in the agricultural sector it's it's even more difficult and uh, bram and, and lilian have have wholeheartedly shared their their journey and their experience of of building imata i'm sure that a lot of people would would benefit from it and we'll see many more people wanting to take up building tech startups in the in the agricultural space so thank you both of you yeah thanks for having us ajay it was an absolute pleasure uh, and because we have been bashing the the e-commerce companies a little bit as 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 a founder with with a challenging work life balance you guys please also don't give up <laughs> i need those services uh, but indeed agri agri is real agri is huge uh, and and you know honestly even though it often means uh, long journeys on muddy roads it also is pretty sexy right these farmers make sure we can have our cappuccinos our popcorns our chocolate um so yeah uh, we really need uh, these agri agri tech companies out there 100% with you on that everyone should everyone should should build there's there's nothing stopping anyone whether you're building e-commerce you're building payments agriculture of course but uh, that's that's the whole reason why we are we are hosting this founders 52 series i think bringing different founders with different journeys in different industries all building in africa for africa i think it's it's a good good story to to narrate uh, and these are narratives which kind of uh, excite and and inspire people to to take up entrepreneurship and and probably in in some cases follow someone and build something which they're passionate about but where they have someone to look up to in some cases they want to be the path breakers and and go and build something that that no one has has done before and that's the whole point of of operating uh, founders 52 as a as a free willing conversation with founders who have who have been there having their journeys that that they are open enough to to share with uh, next generation of entrepreneurs who are building in africa for africa with that we'd like to to call down the the curtains on on episode 25 Uh, we are here every wednesday night at 9 pm east africa time with with the founder or in this case which was the first time that we had two co-founders together on the on the chat we are here every wednesday night 9 pm uh, east africa time talking to uh, a founder who's building in africa for africa and who has a, a journey to to share and with that we uh, hope to inspire many more people to to take up entrepreneurship in the african continent and that's a small bit that we try to do at hindsight ventures because end of the day as as an organization we are here to to support startups support entrepreneurs we are we are an accelerator we operate venture boot camps we operate entrepreneurship support programs and we love talking to entrepreneurs so thank you so much for being a wonderful audience and look forward to hosting the next episode with another set of founder or founders at founders 52 thank you so much have a nice evening.com visit to download your spaces today 